Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. Last time, I started a series that I've entitled Questioning Christianity. In this series, I intend to take all of the objections that I've heard to Christianity and try to answer them. Part of my purpose is to equip you to minister to other people, but at the same time, I am fully aware that Christians have these questions too. Last week, I dealt with how can you prove there is a God? And this time, I'd like to talk about, is the Bible reliable? Christianity is built on a book called the Bible. That being the case, it's not surprising that uh, some people would question the foundation of our faith. The questions that are hurled at Christianity are rather interesting concerning the Bible. For example, people have asked me, how do you know that the right books are in the Bible? Uh, Maybe some wrong ones got in. Or a more common question is, aren't there books that should be in that aren't? Maybe we missed some. You ever heard that question? Yeah, okay. How do you answer that? Then there's the question of um, accurate copies. Uh, We don't have the original copies. We have copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. So how do we know we have an accurate copy of the original? Another question that I've heard is, okay, so we have um, a translation. I actually had a fellow say to me once, since the Bible was translated from Hebrew to Greek to Latin, to German, and finally to English, didn't we lose something in translation? But a lot of people might not put it like that, but they still want to know about the accuracy of the translation. Then a very common challenge to the Bible is, what about all the contradictions in the Bible? What about all the errors in the Bible? Have you ever had anybody ask you about contradictions? Okay, errors in the Bible? How do you answer that? Are there errors? Are there contradictions in the Bible? And then there's that old question that all of us grapple with all the time. How do you know you got the right uh, interpretation? Uh, I mean, look at all the different denominations, and they all have a different interpretation of the Bible. How do you know which one is right? Now, um, that's a full menu. If I answer all of these questions in detail, I figure we won't get out till dinner time. <laughs> Next week. <laughs> Stole my line. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. All right. What I'm going to do is quickly survey these questions, acknowledging that whole books have been written on some of these. So I'm, I'm not as interested in answering every minute detail as I am in giving you a sample of some of the answers to these questions. I don't expect you to remember everything I'm going to cover today. 
What I do expect or hope for is that you will at least get a feel and an idea of the fact that there are reasonable answers to all of these challenges. So let's start with uh, what is called the formation of the Bible. How do we know we have all the right books in the Bible? Are there some in here that shouldn't be? Are there some that aren't in here that should be? All right. What the Bible is claiming, let's start here, is that the Spirit of God inspired the Scripture. He superintended, the way theologians like to say it, the human authors as they were writing the Scripture. Now, if that's true, and that's stated, by the way, in 2 Timothy 3.16, then it it stands to reason that if God went to the trouble to inspire his word, that he would then oversee the collection of the various books he inspired to put in the Bible. Now that's sort of the basic idea of what is called the formation of the Bible. But let me get a little more specific. We have the Old Testament and the New Testament, and those need to be addressed separately. A number of years ago, I sat down and really started grappling with this question. What's the answer to this? Uh, The standard answer is, in the case of the New Testament, that some council in 395 decided what books were in the Bible. That's the standard answer. I wanted to know, is that true? Is there any evidence that there was the formation of the Bible before that? Uh, And by the way, that... The technical word for that's canon. What's the canon? What books in the Bible are that's the measure of inspired scripture? Well, let me start with the Old Testament. If you look at the Old Testament, it repeatedly says, God spoke. Let's start with the first five books. God spoke to Moses. It says that over and over and over and over and over again. Then it says that God told Moses to write. It says that in Exodus chapter 17 and Exodus chapter 34 and Deuteronomy chapter 17. So then, God spoke to Moses, God told him to write, and then God said, preserve what you just wrote. For example, in Deuteronomy 31, verse 24 we are told, so it was when Moses had completing writing the words of the law in a book, when they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, take this book of the Lord, law and put it inside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. So the Bible is very clear about the formation of the Bible. From the very beginning it was stated, you shall write and you shall preserve what I told you to write. Now that starts with Moses, but it doesn't stop there. As a matter of fact, you can go right through the scripture, the Old Testament, and over and over again the authors say, God spoke to me and God told me to write this down. And we know that as that happened, these books were collected. 
Now, we don't know that in every case, but we know it enough to surmise that it did happen in every case. So let me give you an example. God told Jeremiah to write. Jeremiah wrote. For example, Jeremiah 36 says, Now it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Joash, the son, the king of Judah, that the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take a scroll of a book and write in it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel, against Judah, and against all the nations from the day I spoke to you, from the day of Joash, even to this day. Now, that's where God told Jeremiah, write it down. What is really fascinating is that Daniel says, and I got it and I read it. Mm -hmm. Daniel chapter 9 says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the book the number of years specified by the word of the Lord given through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. So this is but one illustration of where God told somebody to write it down and it was immediately recognized as the word of God and preserved. So it's not that some council years later decided this. It was a process and it was being decided as it went along. As a matter of fact, uh, there is no council that we know anything about concerning the Old Testament. Uh, as far as we know, uh, it was collected along the way. You say, yeah, but how do you know we have the right books? Well, the answer to that is in Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, and look at verse 44. Then he, Jesus, said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was with you, all the things which were fulfilled were written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms concerning me. So Jesus, Jesus is saying, I took them through the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's the, at the time he said that, that was the threefold division of what the Jews called the Hebrew Scriptures and what we call the Old Testament. Now, what's fascinating about that is this. Josephus was a Jewish historian who lived in the first century. And he told us about this and named the books in this threefold division. The Law of Moses consisted of the first five books of the Bible. The prophets consisted of the major and minor prophets. The Psalms, and you know they didn't have books in those days, they had scrolls. Well, in the scrolls, it was the writings that weren't the law of Moses and weren't the prophets. And the first book was the Psalms, so that scroll was called the Psalms. But it included other books that weren't the law of Moses and the prophets. Josephus gives us the list that the Jews recognized at the time of Christ. And it is identical to the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. Now, the number of books is different, but the content is identically the same. 
The reason the number is different is the Jews put First and Second Samuel together and we divided it. First and Second Kings and we divided it. So there are cases, First and Second Chronicles, there are other illustrations. But the content we know is identical. So we can be certain of the Old Testament because Jesus said, we, th this is the Old Testament, and he gave us the content of the books. So there's no question about the Old Testament. You say, well, wait a minute. Well, what about the Apocrypha? I mean, uh, the Catholic Church recognizes books. The Protestants don't. I mean, maybe those books should be in the Bible. Well, let me tell you about those books. Many of them, most of them, not all of them, were written during the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's a 400-year gap. And there's some very valuable information historically in those books. But they weren't inspired scripture. Jesus never quoted them as scripture. The apostles never quoted them as scripture. The early church never quoted them as scripture. Never. Nobody. Ever. Until the Protestant Reformation in 1517 was uh, countered by the Catholic Church, and they got together in a city called Trent, and they came up with the Council of Trent in 1546. And for the first time, go check this out, first time the church recognized the Apocrypha, 1,500 years after Jesus was on this earth. So there's not in a lot of question about whether or not that is inspired scripture. It's not. It wasn't recognized by Jesus, the apostle, or the early church. Now that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Well, that gets a little more complicated, but not exactly. For example, I gave you the little formula. God spoke, they wrote, and what they wrote was immediately recognized. That's sort of the little formula. It's true in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.27 says, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. Colossians 4.16 says, Now when this epistle is read among you, see to it that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from the Laodiceans. Revelation 22.18 says, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. So these people recognized that they were writing the word of God and they wrote it down and instructed, in essence, that it be read by everybody and preserved. And lo and behold, it was immediately recognized. In the New Testament, it was recognized. For example, in 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul says, quote, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Did you hear what that verse said? The scripture said, and he quotes two passages. One is in the Old Testament. 
He's calling the Old Testament scripture. And the other is nowhere in the Bible except the Gospel of Luke. Paul is calling Luke scripture. Interesting. So, Peter says in 2 Peter 3.15 and 16, The long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as so also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking of those things in which some things are hard to be understood. Boy, am I glad Peter said that. (laughs) He had a hard time understanding some of the things Paul said. Which the untaught and unstable wrestle to their own destruction, as they also do with the rest of Scripture. Peter calls all of Paul's epistles scripture, and that epistle was written before 70 AD. So, my point is very simple, that the scripture of the New Testament was following the same formula as the scripture in the Old Testament. God said, write, they wrote, and it was immediately recognized, and we have indications of that in the Old Testament, and the New Testament. Then, this is a really fascinating study for me. As soon as the New Testament was closed, we have people who wrote. Uh, The first was Clement of Rome, one of the first. Wrote in 95 AD. He was in Rome, and he wrote to Corinth. And in that letter, which we still have a copy of, he talks about they were Paul visiting them, and he quotes 1 Corinthians. And he challenges them because they were having divisions in the church. By the way, that's the problem they were having when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 40 years before. Isn't that interesting? But the point is, he recognized it as scripture. Now that's just the beginning. Matter of fact, I did a study of this once. First uh, Timothy, I'm sorry, First Clement, it's called, quotes Matthew, Romans, First Corinthians, and Hebrews in 95 A.D. Ignatius in 116 A.D knew the Old Test- uh, New Testament in general, especially the epistles of Paul, Matthew, and the Gospel of John. Matter of fact, I, I sat down once, this was a couple of years ago, and I uh, made a chart, and I listed all the books in the New Testament, and then I listed um, ancient authors and the verses that they either quote or allude to, and I listed the New Testament references, and then I listed the references where they in their writings. And I discovered that every book of the New Testament was quoted or alluded to by some author by 116 A.D. That's incredible. Now, the only little flaw in this study was this. It quotes, they quote 1 John. I couldn't find 2 John and 3 John. But 
But there is a scholar who argues that 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John was bound as one book, and so if they quoted 1st John, they knew 2nd and 3rd John. If that's the case, then every book of the New Testament is either quoted or alluded to by 116 A.D. Way before that, Peter called Paul Scripture, and Paul called Luke Scripture. Well, what about this fact that... um, Uh, You know, they didn't uh, get recognized until years later. All right, let me explain. The early church was persecuted. They ran underground. They were not given freedom until 312 A.D. at the Edict of Milan by Constantine. For the first time, they came out from underground, and then... They had some councils before, but not much. Now they could have universal councils. So it's in the fourth century that for the first time they can make these kinds of public statements. So, in 367, Athanasius wrote a letter, a Christmas letter, and in it he listed the 27 books of the New Testament. In um, Augustine did the same thing. Jerome did the same thing. Jerome died 420. Augustine died in 430. The Council of Carthage in 397 and the Council at Chalcedon in 451 formally recognized the 27 books we have in the New Testament. And so what happens is people see that formal recognition and they say, oh, the New Testament wasn't put together until 397. Then you don't understand what's going on. That was the formal recognition of what God had already done. I've demonstrated that the church recognized the inspired books of the New Testament hundreds of years before 397. As a matter of fact, there was a scholar in England years ago, Westcott, who wrote a book on this subject and said the canon, even if you took extra biblical sources, was uh, settled by, by 200. Well, that's a lot shorter than 397, by 200 years. Matter of fact, there's an ancient writer who at the end of the second century said, as there are four points to the compass, there are only four gospels in the New Testament. So, uh, here's what's going on. Uh, These men did not formulate the Bible, the New Testament. They formally recognized the formation of the Bible. So I think a great case can be made that we have all the books that God intended for us to have. So that's the subject of the formation of the Bible. The next question is, Well, what about the transmission of the Bible? Okay, so those are the books. How do we know we've got the right copy of those books? Or as I mentioned a minute ago, somebody said it was translated from Hebrew to Greek to Latin to German to English. The simple reality is that's not even close to the truth. It's as simple as that. Jesus said that I say to you that until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will by no means pass away until all is fulfilled. So again, let me talk about the Old Testament and let me talk about the New Testament. Do we have good copies? Well, let me explain something to you. 
The Jewish scribes copied the Old Testament meticulously. They so reverenced the name of God that we pronounce Jehovah or Yahweh. We don't know how to pronounce it to tell you the truth. That every time they came to that word, they stopped and went and took a bath and then wrote that word. If that word was in a verse three times, they took three baths. They counted the words on the page to make sure they had every word right. Now let me tell you how sure we are that we have an accurate copy of the scripture. Until a few years ago, the oldest copy we had of the Old Testament was 900 A.D. Then we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls contains a copy of the book of Isaiah, 200 B.C. So we jumped 1,100 years from 900 A.D. to 200 B.C. One of my Hebrew professors, when I was in seminary, graduated from Harvard with a doctorate in Hebrew. Dr. Bruce Walkie. And I remember very vividly in class him saying, and I've read by other scholars since, the only difference, he read Hebrew like we read English, it was disgusting. Um, he said the only difference is that every once in a while there's an article missing. Or there's a singular here and a plural here. That's it. So we can say with scientific dogmatism that we have an accurate copy of Isaiah. And there's no reason to believe that we don't have an accurate copy of the rest of the New Testament like that. Matter of fact, a, a pastor friend of mine sent me something the other day. They have scientifically found a scroll they couldn't unroll because it was all meshed together, and they've been able with laser or something to read it, and it's a, uh, a copy of Leviticus. Wow. All right, we have an accurate copy of the Old Testament. Well, what about the New Testament? All right, let me explain. We have 5,800 copies of the New Testament. I'm talking about manuscripts, handwritten copies. And the printing press wasn't invented until 1450, roughly 1450, Gutenberg. But before that, we have handwritten manuscripts, and we have 5,800 of those things. Now, they're not all full manuscripts of the whole New Testament. Some are fragments, but we have 5,800. And we can compare them. And there is an uncanny uniformity to the majority of those manuscripts. 85 to 95, depending on which manuscript, uh, which book of the New Testament you're looking at, is, is identical. Now let me explain how significant that is. Jerome translated the Greek into Latin. That Latin translation became the official version of the Roman Catholic Church. So the Roman Catholic Church has used the Latin. So we have Latin manuscripts sanctioned officially by the Roman Catholic Church. But there are all kinds of problems in that versus 
the majority of Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. There is more uniformity in the Greek New Testament than there is in the officially sanctioned Latin translation. That's, that's mind-boggling. So, are there some differences? Yes. Uh, for example, they found a couple of manuscripts that leave out the story of the woman take, caught in adultery. And uh, some manuscripts lead out, leave out uh, the last 12 verses of Mark. Now, let me explain that. And I've investigated this very carefully over many years. Yeah, there are two manuscripts that leave out the last 12 verses of Mark. And in one of them, there's a blank space for it. The scribe knew it belonged there and didn't put it there. The vast, vast, vast majority of 5,000 manuscripts, 5,800, are in agreement. Now, let me tell you how significant that is. No scholar doubts that we have a copy of Julius Caesar, what he wrote. You know how many copies of that we have? I meant to look it up and I forgot. It's not many. hundred at the most or something. We, there's nothing coming out of the ancient world that has all the copies of, of the likes of which we have of the New Testament. But nobody questions that we have an accurate copy of uh, Plato or Aristotle. So, it's just, it's just good, solid, sound evidence that we have an accurate copy of the scriptures, certainly the Old Testament. And there's not that much debate about the differences in the New Testament. They're very small, and no major teaching of the Bible is questioned by differences in manuscript. It just doesn't exist. So, all right, I want to, let me tell you what I've demonstrated so far. Do we have all the right books? Yes. Yes. Did I put you to sleep? No. This is kind of heavy stuff, isn't it? All right, we have all the right books? Yes. Do we have good copies of the right books? Yes. Okay? Oh, but what about the translation? Aha. What about the translation? How do we know we have the right translation? Well, the Bible is written in three languages. A very small part of the Old Testament is written in Aramaic, but the rest of it is written in Hebrew, and the New Testament is written in Greek. Now, the English translation is built on the Hebrew and the Greek text that we have, which we've just demonstrated is an accurate copy of what's going on. What why are there differences in translations? Matter of fact, have you ever, you got more than one translation of the Bible? Does that not drive you crazy? You ever read, you ever read a verse in one translation and then go look it up in another translation and it's wildly different and you say, what in the world is going on? Have you ever done that? Well, how do you explain that? All right, I'm going to tell you. There are different theories of translation. Matter of fact, there's a lot of different theories of translations. You can put them on a spectrum. At the far end of that spectrum, on the right, let's say, the theory is that you should give a word-for-word -word translation. How many of you know a foreign language? You know Spanish? 
Could you, could you translate Spanish word for word into English? No. And it be readable? No. no. Uh, or any other language. So you've got to make some changes, but, uh, but you, you try to stay as close as possible, this theory, as close as possible to the words and the word order. On the other end of the spectrum is a view that says, well, you don't have to worry about that. Just give what is called the impact. Uh, paraphrase it. Uh, put it in language of today. Matter of fact, there, there's a translation that actually has first and second Birmingham in it, trying to make it up to date and modern. Uh, and, and so they, the minute you start doing that, you are not translating, you are interpreting. So the reason that there are different translations is because there are different theories of translation. Can I tell you what I really think? You know why we got so many translations? money. We got so many publishers. So one publisher has to have a translation. Another publisher doesn't have his translation, so he's got to come up with another translation. You know? Now, you put those two things together, and you got the explanation for translations. But I'm going to tell you something about translation. Somebody said to me once, it's not the part of the Bible I don't understand that bothers me. It's the part of the Bible I do understand that bothers me. And I concur with that. It's the part of the Bible I do understand. You can take any translation. I don't care what the translation theory is, and you can read it, and it'll tell you this. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus arose from the dead, and salvation is by faith in Jesus who died to pay for your sins. I don't care what translation you use. My father was an immigrant from Greece. I was christened in the Greek Orthodox Church. Where do you think Kakoros comes from? It's Greek. And um, the man that led me to Christ was a Baptist pastor. And he stopped me one day and said, do you know for sure you're going to heaven? And I said, uh, yeah, I think so. I'd, I'd been baptized in the Greek Orthodox Church. They practice triune immersion. They dip a baby three times, once for each member of the Trinity. I was triune immersed. I got it ahead of the Baptist. And then, because I was dating some girl and she wanted me to join this Baptist church, I joined this Baptist church and they dipped me again. So I'd been baptized four times. So I thought I had a crack at it. He was totally unimpressed. He took me into his office, he opened the Bible and he explained to me that Jesus died for me, that Jesus arose from the dead, and I could know I had eternal life if I trusted Christ because that's what God said. And I trusted Christ, and I'm standing here today because of that decision I made many, many years ago. 
I did not know until many years later. He knew I was Greek Orthodox or thought I was. So he used a Catholic Bible to lead me to Christ. So you can use any translation. Translation isn't the issue. They differ, sure. But just read them. Now, I have some opinions about what translation you should use. Uh, matter of fact, I think currently one of the best translations on the market is the new King James. And it's because I think it's, best on the, it's built on the manuscripts that include things like the last 12 verses of Mark and the woman taken in adultery. And it's got a word-for-word. They're trying to be as literal as possible with the translation. For those two reasons, I highly recommend you get uh, a New King James uh, translation. If you really want to do it right, get a New King James Study Bible. It's called an NKJV Study Bible. Now, I wrote some of the notes but I don't, get a, I don't get a royalty. I just, they gave me a flat fee and I wrote some. So this is not a commercial. It's just the most exhaustive study Bible on the market. And I don't agree with all the notes some of those other guys wrote. <laughs> but it's still one of the best study Bibles on the market. So get a good study Bible and that translation and you're in good shape. Well, even with that translation, you can uh, still have a problem with interpretation, right? What do you do about that? Are there various different interpretations? Well, let me talk about interpretation for just a second. There are rules for interpretation. Whole books are written on this. It's called uh, hermeneutics, the rules of interpretation. And, and here are the rules of interpretation. You need to look at what's the key word for interpreting anything. Give me a word. No. Context. Right? Okay. There's a historical context, a literary context, a subject context, and a linguistic context. Real simple. Jesus said if somebody asked you uh, to carry their pack a mile, you should carry it two miles. What in the world does that mean? Well, historically we know that the Roman government, which ruled Palestine, had a law that if a Roman soldier asked you to carry a, their pack a mile, you had to do it. It was legal. You had to do it. And the Pharisees hated the Romans with a passion. They hated the Romans. So they would carry it exactly one mile, set it down, and say, there, I've done my duty. And Jesus is teaching, you know, if you had the right attitude, you'd carry it another mile. It's all that hatred in your heart toward the Romans that's the problem. So we understand that verse because we understand the historical context in which it was written. Or how about the literary context? Well, there's different types of literature in the Bible. There's prose and poetry and parable and prophecy. And they each have a different way of communicating. A historical narrative records factual description. Didactic material in poetry contains figures of speech, such as metaphors, similes, personifications, and hyperboles. Now, all that's a bunch of technical jargon. The simple thing is, when Jesus said, I am the door, what did he mean? That he was a hunk of wood? 
No. He meant, I'm like a door that is the entrance way. You don't have to be a scholar to figure that out. And he called us sheep. Does he mean we're animals? No, he means we're, it's worse than that, he means we're dumb like a sheep. <laughs> that isn't difficult. But the real issue is this. You want to know how to interpret the Bible? What's the word? Ooh, you got it. Now, let me give you an illustration. Suppose some fellow wrote, my heart bleeds. What does that mean? Well, off the bat, I know it could be literal, right? Or it could be figurative. So how am I going to determine whether it's literal or figurative? Read what else he said in context. Well, let me give you this additional information. The fellow that wrote that was a college student. He just flunked his final exams. His girlfriend left him, and he lost his job. Is that literal or figurative? All right, let me give you another illustration. There was a man who had a heart attack, had open-heart surgery, fell out of bed, rolled down the stairs, and is coughing up blood. What does it mean? Literal. Now, that's the way you read anything. And people come to the Bible and want to make it difficult. It's not that difficult. And then, of course, there's uh, linguistic context. You need to know the meaning of a word. You ever heard of a dictionary? <laughs> Let me tell you what a dictionary does. A dictionary gives you the, um, the field of meaning. That's a technical phrase. In other words, this word can mean all of these possibilities. And then you go to what you're reading and figure out which one of those meanings fits this passage. Right? Same thing with the Bible. Same thing with anything that's written. So let me give you an illustration of that. You ever heard of the word trunk? What does that mean? Well, let me give you some possibilities. There's a trunk at the back of your car. There is a tree that has a trunk. And there is an elephant that has a trunk. Now, if, I, if you're reading something and it has the word trunk, and all you see is the word trunk, how do you know which trunk it is? You just keep reading before it and after it. And if it's talking about the trunk of a car, you're not going to walk away thinking it was the trunk of a tree or the trunk of an elephant. Just read what's there. As a matter of fact, when people say to me, well, there are so many different translations, I say, let's test this out. And I take a Bible and I turn and I say, I want you to interpret this verse for me. You ready? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Interpret that for me. Is this difficult? What would you say? Would you say from that verse that you could conclude that God loves everybody? that fair? Wow, you're a Bible scholar. All right, read the rest of it. That he gave his only begotten son. Now you got to know a little other stuff about that passage to know who's his only begotten son. 
Jesus. Right? He's called the Son of God. All right. And he gave him, and you need to read the rest of the book, called the Gospel of John, and it clearly says he died for the sin of the world. It says that before you get to that verse. It says it in chapter 1, verse 29. All right, then what else is that? God loves you. He sent Jesus to die for you. And if you believe, you go to heaven. That's interpretation. Okay? Most of the Bible is like that. Do not steal. What's the interpretation of that? You don't have to worry about the interpretation. You need to worry about the application. Do not bear false witness. What's the, ap- what's the interpretation of that? Yeah. Don't lie. And on and on and on. We can- Most of the Bible is very plain. Matter of fact, that's the problem. It's pretty plain. We're sinners. The penalty's death. There's a judgment to come. But Jesus died and you can avoid the judgment if you trust him. I mean, the Bible's pretty plain. You don't have to be a scholar to figure all that out. You need to read it. And believe it. All right, how are we doing here? We got the right books? Yes. We got the right copy? Yes. And we figured out how to interpret this thing? Yes. All right, I brought up one other question I haven't answered, and it's called accuracy. Yeah. But let's suppose all that's true. How do you know there aren't errors in the Bible or contradictions? Oh, skeptics really like this one. There are contradictions in the Bible. When somebody says that to me, I hand them my Bible and say, show me one. I've done that on numerous occasions. Rarely can they show me one. Usually the people that show me what they think is a contradiction is a Christian. The skeptics usually don't know where they think the contradictions are. All right, let me explain something to you. Many years ago, Many years ago, I made a decision that I was going to study every verse of the Bible. I have spent my entire life, over 50 years, studying every verse of the Bible and writing a commentary on it. Tomorrow, I will have finished the project. I am one chapter shy. It's the last chapter in the book of Psalms. Tomorrow, I will have that done. And I'm here to tell you, I've examined every verse in the Bible that people say is a contradiction. And I'm here to tell you, after studying this book for 50 years, there's an explanation for every one of them. I'm not taking somebody else's word for it. I've personally looked at every one of them. Now, let me give you an illustration of the kind of thing that happens. One of the Gospels says... That as Jesus went out of Jericho, he healed a blind man. That's Matthew chapter 20. Luke says that he healed a blind man as he was coming near to Jericho. Aha! A contradiction. One says it was when he was going out, and one said it was coming in. We got you now. How do you explain that? Well, there are several possibilities. One is there are two Jerichos. One is, there were two healings. He healed one man going in and the other man coming out. And by the way, there were two Jerichos. There was an old Jericho and a new Jericho. 
And it is very possible, depending on where you were standing, is that he was literally going out of one into the other. We know that historically. But I had a Greek professor friend who said, well, if you understand the Greek text, what's going on is this. As he entered the city, he started crying out, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. And he cried it all the way through the city. So it started as he was entering, and it happened when he was going out. So there are three possible explanations for that. Uh, and that's the kind of thing that goes on in every case. There are reasonable explanations for every challenge to what is supposed to be a contradiction in the Bible. One fellow wrote, and I quote, time and time again an apparent contradiction has been vindicated by the discovery of modern archaeology. Dr. Nelson uh, Glick, an outstanding Jewish archaeologist, made the remarkable statement, quote, no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference, end of quote. And this phenomenal statement comes from one of the world's leading archaeologists. For those still unreconciled conflicts between the Bible and history, our logical attitude ought to be wait and see what further evidence will disclose. We don't have all the answers to all the problems, but all the vindicating data thus far certainly suggests that we can trust the biblical record about these details that still appear questionable. And I could go on and on. Matter of fact, I've done a lot of study on the archaeological proof of the Bible, and it's staggering. Uh, a couple of hundred years ago, they said Moses couldn't have written the Bible. He couldn't write. Archaeologists discovered what was going on in Egypt, and now they say, well, come to think of it, he could have written it in three different languages. There was uh, some reference to some group of people in Genesis, and they said, well, the Bible's wrong. Those people didn't exist. And now a couple of Italian archaeologists have dug up some tablets at Ibla, and they discovered they were a huge civilization. And on and on and on and on and on and on we could go. Uh, there's all kinds of archaeological proof of uh, things in the Bible, down to people's names. Uh, Pontius Pilate lived at Caesarea, and uh, they found a stone with his name chiseled in it. Guess where? Caesarea. Uh, in the city of Dan in the last few years, they found a reference. They said uh, something about questioning David, and they found now a stone that says the house of David chiseled in it. Uh, so we could go on and on and on. How are we doing? You think we got you think we can trust this thing? Yeah. Do we have an accurate copy with the right books? Okay. What I'm teaching today is simply this. God's book has been faithfully formulated, accurately transmitted and translated, proven historically accurate with a clear message of eternal life for those who trust Christ. Any question asked about this book has good, reasonable answers. Now, instead of you questioning the Bible, the Bible has a question for you. What are you going to do with Jesus Christ? Amen. That's the question. 
It's not you questioning the Bible. It's the Bible. The Word of God is asking you a question. What are you going to do with him? Let me end by telling you this. I'm suggesting you trust a book. Matter of fact, I trust this book. I'm trusting my eternal destiny on this book. And I trust a lot of what I do in life by what's written in this book. But you trust a book too. Matter of fact, we trust books that, unlike the Bible, have never stood the test of time. And we know for a fact they're going to change it in a few years. You ever go to a doctor? He's going to treat you out of a medical book. And most of what's in that book, they wrote recently. I talked to a doctor a few years ago, and he said, 90% of the drugs I prescribe today didn't exist when I graduated from medical school. So you can be sure that you go to a doctor and he gives you a medical treatment out of a medical book that he trusts and you trust him, and that medical treatment's probably going to change in your lifetime. So what you're really doing is trusting a book. So I have no, I have no qualms to tell you, I trust this thing. Spent my life studying it, and I'm here to tell you it's trustworthy. So the question is, do you have enough sense to trust it? Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us the assurance that it is, in fact, accurate and reliable. And now, Lord, give us the grace to do what it says even when we feel differently about it because we trust you beyond the book. In Jesus' name, amen.